This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in today for Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with the politics lead. President Trump dismissing the stunning report from The New York Times that found that Mr. Trump paid no federal income tax for much of the last two decades. In 2016 and 2017, he paid just $750 each year compared to the average American tax burden of about $12,000. And though the president touts his business sense, the Times also found the Trump businesses have been losing huge amounts of money, helping lower Trump's taxes. And one $72.9 million tax refund is the source of an IRS audit. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, President Trump today claimed the story is false, though he says he's entitled to tax cuts just like everyone else. It's totally fake news. As President Trump is lashing out over a damning New York Times report about the dire state of his finances, his aides are claiming it's a last-minute hit job before the first debate. We've seen this play out before, where there was a hit piece about the president's taxes uh, just before a debate, an inaccurate one at that. The president has paid lots of taxes, but the point is that why would anybody pay more than they owe? Neither his staff nor the president have provided any documents to refute what the New York Times is reporting, including that he only paid $750 in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017, despite the millions that he earned. Actually, I paid tax, but and you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It, it's under order. They've been under order for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. That number not only pales in comparison to most Americans, but also to past presidents, who all paid tens of thousands of dollars in federal taxes. Because of the massive losses, the report says Trump paid no income tax at all in 11 of the 18 years of documents they obtained. When he did pay taxes, he reduced what he owed using questionable measures, including a nearly $73 million tax refund, now the subject of an IRS audit. It turns out that Trump's best-known properties drain the most money. He's lost around $315 million on his golf properties over the last two decades, including on Trump National Doral near Miami, where the president tried to host the G7 summit. I don't need promotion, okay? But I was willing to do this for free, and they would have, it would have been the greatest G7 ever. The report also shows Trump made more money than previously known from foreign governments, including during his time in office, and used tax deductions for so-called business expenses that most people would consider personal ones, like $70,000 in hairstyling while hosting The Apprentice. But perhaps what could be most damaging from the reports is what's to come. The Times says an enormous amount of financial pressure is facing Trump because hundreds of millions of dollars in loans that he is personally responsible for will be due within the next four years. This president is the commander in chief. He has exposure to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars to whom the public has a right to know. And Pam, another thing in this report, it shows that the president paid $750,000 in consulting fees to his own daughter, Ivanka Trump, while she was serving as a senior vice president at the Trump organization, already being paid as an employee there, but also being paid as a consultant on some of the projects that she worked on. So there are still questions about that. And we should note that yesterday the president said that the New York Times had not reached out to him for a comment on this, although his attorney is on the record in the story. Yep, Alan. 
Garden is on the record in the story. All right. Thanks so much, Caitlin Collins. Appreciate it. Let's discuss. Uh, we have Chris Eliza here, Sung Min. Sung, let's, Sung Min, let's start with you. The Times reports that since 2000, President Trump lost more than $315 million at his golf courses and $174 million at other Trump-owned businesses. This really kind of cuts down the image that the President Trump has tried to, to prop up, that, that he is a successful businessman. I think that's precisely correct. And that could be one of the most damaging uh, parts about this uh, tax revelation by the New York Times. I mean, we can it's it's obviously yet to be seen over the next several days how much this actually moves voters. But so much of the president's appeal was kind of is back in 2016 and still to this day that he is someone who can have a good stewardship of the economy. He is that smart businessman who will run the country like a business. And now we see from his tax returns that, you know, for many of his properties, that was not the case um, again. But already you are seeing uh, Republicans kind of push back at this report, whether it's going to change any minds, we can kind of take cues from Republican elected Republican officials. And we have Senator Chuck Grassley, um, who is chair of the finance or finance committee, who is the top tax writing committee in the Senate saying, you know, kind of taking Trump's side and saying, why is the IRS doing taking so long to audit his tax mm-hmm. returns? Um, so in terms of uh, whether he's going to get support from his own party on this, I would say for now that is a pretty safe bet. So you have his own party and then you have the voters at large, Chris. Uh, the president says yep. this isn't true. Do you think that works, uh, particularly when the president is not willing to release his tax returns to prove it? Um, I think it works for people who want to believe that it's not true. Um, You know, he's denied it sort of. Uh, You know, he said things, Pam, like, well, I pay taxes. Again, the the allegation isn't that he's never paid taxes Mm -hmm. or he doesn't pay state taxes, right? So you got to be careful when you're reading that. I I think a lot of Trump supporters say, well, they're on the record denying it. They're they're not really on the record denying what's in the New York Times report. You know, uh, the interview with the deputy spokesperson for Trump earlier with Poppy, where he said, look, Donald Trump pays taxes. Yeah, sure. (laughs) No one's disputing that. $750 is paying taxes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the issue here is what in the New York Times report is wrong? Uh, unfortunately, I, I'm with Sung Min on this. It, I don't think it's just elected officials, Republican elected officials, who aren't who are going to sort of say, "Oh, that's Trump being Trump." I, my guess is you're going to see most Trump supporters who are with him are going to stay with him over this, and most people who are, are opposed to Trump will see this as yet more evidence of corruption and him using the office to make money. The thing that I would say is take the politics out of it for a second. You have someone who is in significant personal debt. Those debts are coming due. We don't exactly know who holds those debts. And this is someone who, as Sungman noted, has made his career and his political career particularly on the side that he's this hugely successful businessman. Well, these returns suggest he's not. So take it out of politics. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot going on here, whether or not it's going to change people's minds. Well, it does raise really significant questions we don't have the answer to. Uh, Who does he owe this money to? Are there conflicts of interest uh, with his job as president in terms of his dealings, um, dealings with overseas um, heads of state and so forth? I mean, it does raise a lot of questions. And then you have the Biden campaign, not surprisingly, Sungmin, releasing this digital video juxtaposing the thousands in taxes that teachers, firefighters, nurses and more pay versus Donald Trump's $750. We see it right here. How much does this bolster the Biden message? What do you think? 
It really does help make the case for the Biden campaign that they have pushed in recent days, saying that this is a that saying that this is a campaign between Park Avenue and Scranton, where Vice President Biden was born. Um, how much it actually moves the needle, like we've been discussing, is so hard to tell because it does. Um, I mean, so many voters' minds are so polarized and so solidified, whether you like Trump or not, but it does help kind of boost the Biden campaign's message. You know, the Vice President Biden has been working hard to win back those white working class voters that went so strongly for the president in 2016. And I think this uh, showing the tax returns, uh, showing kind of the disparity between what uh, teachers, firefighters, nurses have to pay to the federal government and taxes and showing and, and showing what the president, this very wealthy guy actually paid is something that definitely the Biden campaign will be emphasizing. Certainly. And Pam, can I, Pam, can I just, I just, I just want to add one thing as it relates to the politics of it. Look, whether this story moves people or not, I'm skeptical of, right? Cause nothing moves people at this point. That said, we're five weeks from the election every And it's an election, by the way, that Donald Trump is demonstrably behind in both nationally and in every swing state that I see. He's tied at best or behind. Every day we get closer, where we're talking about anything like this story, the handling of the coronavirus, state of the economy, these are not issues that Donald Trump can win on. He is not going to win an election where voters are thinking, I don't really love how he handled the pandemic. And I don't know about this tax story, but man, it sure seems like he paid less taxes than me. He doesn't win on that, right? He needs to change people's minds at this point. Stories like this that is going to go on for days and it's going to mm -hmm. be a topic of the debate tomorrow night, obviously. It's just we're not 400 days from an election, right? We're 37, I think. And that means that every day is critical. And this is a lost day for him. And tomorrow will almost mm -hmm. certainly be a lost day for him. And now we're 30. You know, now we're literally five weeks away. That's really important context, I think, in terms of why this matters right now. I, I also think it's interesting the analysis you did, Chris, on um, the president's financial troubles being the reason, in your view, behind why he ran yeah. for president in the first place. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just real quickly, read the New York Times thing, and if you don't, if you don't want to go through the whole thing, read what David Leonhardt wrote. Eighteen takeaways about it, you know, for for us with less of an attention span. And in that, he notes really effectively that it's 2015. It's January 2015. Don, he's a decade removed from the Apprentice sort of success and the money and the ratings and the marketing that came from that. It's it's bringing less money in. He's losing money on his golf courses. He's he has these loans coming due. What can he do? What's the last card he can play to make himself relevant again? Because remember, the way Donald Trump makes money is not building buildings. It's putting his name on things. And if his name doesn't matter as much and isn't as relevant, that's sort of his biggest worry and issue. What does he do? He runs for president. The timing makes sense. Go back and read Donald Trump's speech when he announces. Obviously, we, we know all about, you know, he, he refers to Mexico as sending us rapists and criminals. But I went through it today, mm -hmm. Pam. He promotes two buildings he owns. He promotes steaks. He promotes ice water, Trump ice. He, he talks about how the air conditioning is really good in Trump Tower, all against the setting of 
him coming down right. the escalator in his own building. I mean, if you see it through that lens, it all sort of starts to, to make some sense. And then the Thank irony, though, is that, yeah, of course, irony is that he lost a lot of deals, if I remember correctly, early on when he started to run because of the comments yeah. he was making running for president. Yep. But Sungman, you know, we both have covered this White House as well and the politics. His businesses are benefiting from the presidency. For example, the Times shows how there's been a surge of members at Mar-a-Lago netting him an extra $5 million a year since 2015. How does this New York Times reporting shed fresh light on all of that? It clearly shows that while there may be an increase in just the business and the revenue uh, revenue coming in uh, to the Trump property, just how much overall the Trump organization had been losing money and again, puncturing that image of him as a businessman. And I also want to go back to the transparency issue, which I think is fascinating, especially in the context of of the other major fight in Washington right now in the Supreme Court. The Trump campaign, White House officials, President Trump himself have been hounding Vice President Biden and the Biden campaign to release a list of Supreme Court justices that um, Trump kind of famously himself did. Um, But yet, and, and the Biden campaign hasn't done that. But yet the the tax returns, which has been a tradition of presidential campaigns, is something that they have refused to do for years. And and, you know, we may have seen why with this revelation in The New York Times. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's under audit. You can still release the tax returns. All right. Sungman Kim. Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon released his tax returns in the 1970s. (laughs) Who's under audit. This idea that it's illegal. A president has done it. But by the way, it did confirm that his tax returns are still under audit. All right. uh, Thanks so much to both of you. Appreciate you coming on. And we've got some breaking news on a day like this with this bombshell report about his taxes. President Trump just moments ago held an event about COVID tests, but did not take questions from reporters. We're going to be live with those details up next. Plus, we have a CNN exclusive. Russia's so-called propagandist in chief reveals what Vladimir Putin may really think of President Trump and the upcoming U.S. election. Breaking news moments ago, President Trump announced 150 million new rapid coronavirus tests to be sent out to the states and vulnerable communities. The president notably not taking questions from reporters after a stunning investigation into the president's tax returns, revealing Trump only paid $750 in taxes in 2016 and 2017. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, the president is touting this as a huge advancement, but we are nine months into this pandemic here. Yeah, and it's been one month since they actually announced they were purchasing these tests. And Pam, our question immediately then at the end of August when we were first talking about this was, where are these tests going? And now is the first time we're actually getting real details from the administration about this, talking about them going to these vulnerable communities that they feel these tests would be the best. Because remember, these are the tests that can get you results in about 15 minutes. And that's what they were touting there in the Rose Garden. And of course, they're notably doing this one day before the president is going to have his first debate as Joe Biden is trying to hit him on his coronavirus response that we know Americans have roundly rejected. But there are a few things that happened there in the Rose Garden, Pam, that I want to point out to you. And one was what the president said versus what the vice president said, because the president, as he did not take questions shortly before that, he maintained this belief that he has said that the U.S. is rounding the corner when it comes to the pandemic, something that medical experts have not echoed. But then you saw the vice president seem to try to preempt what is expected to come in the weeks ahead by saying America. 
Americans should be ready to see a rise in cases, kind of trying to say that that is something that's up ahead here, Pam. And then also it's notable who we did not hear from in the Rose Garden. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci or Dr. Deborah Burks or even the CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, who NBC News reported earlier this morning that he was overheard on a plane complaining about someone we did hear from, Dr. Scott Atlas, the new coronavirus advisor to the president, who we know has echoed his unscientific views on COVID-19. Things like wearing a mask is not always helpful and doubting the science on that. Scott Atlas spoke, but we did not hear from any of the other medical experts as the president was saying his belief that other people have doubted, which is that the U.S. is rounding the corner. Okay, and we also heard from Admiral Girois, who is the testing czar, of course, but it is notable, Caitlin, um, that we didn't see some of the other main officials on the coronavirus task force, like Dr. Redfield, like Dr. Fauci, Deborah Burks. It it really is an interesting look and uh, pretty telling. Thanks so much, Caitlin. And joining me now to discuss, William Hazeltine, former professor at Harvard Medical School. Nice to see you, William. Uh, I want to just try to put this into context, what we just heard, for everyone to understand. The vice president called this a historic day, 150 million rapid tests, results in 15 minutes. How significant is this? Well, it's a step forward. It's a small step forward. I would rather see 150 million a day, not a month. That's what we really need. This is long overdue. Uh, It will be helpful, but it'll be modestly helpful. We need to be close to a time when everybody in America can have a rapid test for free from the government to test their family. That plus paid home isolation could put a quick end to this epidemic. That's what I'm waiting for, but we don't see. Well, that's the real question of this announcement coming so many months into this pandemic. Is this development too late? Is it better late than never? How should we view this? Well, uh, let's take a look at the overall context. The epidemic is not waning. It's on the rise. I'm looking at the numbers right in front of me as we speak. The U.S. has had a a 23 percent increase in uh, total cases over the last two weeks. We've had a 2% increase in deaths, not a decrease, as was said in the uh, Rose Garden. So this is not getting better. And most of us who look at this see the coming fall as a very dangerous season. It is much better late than not at all, Mm -hmm. but it's inadequate even at its present level. It has to be 10 times, 20 times that level to begin to make a real difference in putting a cap on this pandemic. We can do it but we have to act right away. Right. I mean, every expert I've spoken to on this today has said this country is headed in the wrong direction, which is alarming as we head into flu season, head into the winter, as people let their guard down, as people maybe congregate inside. You're more apt to do that when it's cold outside rather than when it's warm. How much does all of that concern you? It's a very big concern. First of all, we can just look at our neighbors in Europe. They relaxed and what happened? They have higher rates today than they did at their peak Mm -hmm. when they shut down. Mm -hmm. Higher rates today. And that is before the winter months have come on with what we know and expect will be an increase. So they're going to have an increase on top of an increase. And so is that is what we're looking at. So it's a great concern that we begin to take really straightforward measures to test ourselves, to isolate those people while they're contagious. We can do it but we need to act fast. 
And these uh, rapid tests are meant for, you know, the most vulnerable, for school kids, but it doesn't take away what the rest of the population has to do in a lot of circumstances. Go and wait in line, you know, get your test right. and sometimes not getting it back in, in several days, if not weeks. I mean, that's still an issue in this country, right? It's a big issue. And, and let's just say the good news is these tests now exist. The good news is the administration is recognizing these tests exist and distributing. That's a big step forward, but we need to take giant steps forward to put this back in the bottle. What we need to do is have tests, as you pointed out, for average Americans, for people who go to work every day. And for those people who aren't going to take those tests at home, we need to have spot checks in schools and we need to have spot checks in workplaces. So we need a much bigger ramped up manufacturer. We should have been doing this several months ago. Let me put it into an international context. India is treating, actually testing, most of its population with these tests and has been for two or three months. We are way behind the curve. It's time to catch up. I want to ask you the, the news of the day with this um, divide, I guess you should say, between the CDC director, Robert Redfield, and Scott Atlas, who is advising President Trump. Uh, they have different opinions on three issues, masks, youth infections, and herd immunity. Those are three pretty core issues in the fight against coronavirus. Atlas, as we know, has criticized lockdowns. The White House says it's a good thing the president is getting differing opinions from his advisors. Do you agree? Absolutely not at this level. Scott Atlas has taken and modified administration policy in ways that could be totally disastrous. Uh, his theories have no basis in fact. It's not a question of two arguments. It's a question of scientific observation and scientific fact. Look around us. 200,000 of us had died, have died, and we're looking for another 150,000 to die before the end of the year. And Scott Atlas's program would magnify that enormously. On the other hand, we know that masks slow down the epidemic. We know that social isolation slows it down. And so we have tools in our hands right now that we can use to much greater effectiveness, counter to the advice that the administration is now giving to states. Don't close bars. Don't insist on masks. That's straight from Scott Atlas, and it's from his boss is not a sole actor. He's acting out what his boss wants done. Okay. William, thank you so much. That sums it up. Appreciate it. And up You're next, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. And getting ahead of the president and his possible challenges to election results, how Democrats say he might be planning to disrupt the election with 36 days to go. We're back with our 2020 lead. So what happens if President Trump claims victory on election night with millions of mail-in votes uncounted? Or if President Trump loses in crucial swing states and then Republican lawmakers try to overrule the voters? Well, those are just a couple of the doomsday election scenarios that Democrats are preparing for right now. And as CNN's Abby Phillip reports, it may sound alarmist to some, but Democrats say there is plenty of reason to believe the president is considering it. As the president continues to cast doubt over the legitimacy of an election that is just over a month away, this is going to be a disaster. Democratic officials tell CNN an army of lawyers are preparing for a wide range of obscure election scenarios that Trump himself has floated, from sending law enforcement to monitor polls to having the election decided in Congress. We have an advantage if we go back to Congress. Does everyone understand that? 
A disputed electoral college result could put the fate of the election in the hands of the new House of Representatives elected in November. With each state delegation getting one vote, Republicans currently have a 26 to 22 advantage. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is ready for this possibility. I've been working on this for a while. Uh, I've been working on almost every scheme he might have to steal the election. Sending a letter to her caucus urging them to focus on winning a majority of state delegations in November and flipping the Senate, writing, We must achieve that majority of delegations or keep the Republicans from doing so. Trump has also floated the idea of an election that's decided in the Supreme Court, like Bush v. Gore in 2000. I think this will end up in the Supreme Court. And I think it's very important that we have nine justices. One of the Florida judges at the center of that recount who sided with Bush to stop the count and has since retired, making his fears of Trump clear in a rare letter to colleagues, saying Trump is a threat to democracy and giving only one real solution. There will not be a problem if the Democrats if win the Senate when, and Biden wins the presidency. The problem will result if there is continued to be a divide between the House and the Senate. Trump falsely claiming that voter fraud is rampant, tweeting this morning, the ballots being returned to states cannot be accurately counted. Many things are already going very wrong. But the president has been building a case against absentee ballots or mail-in voting for months, none of which is based on facts. Widespread voter fraud is largely non-existent in the United States. You could forget about November 3rd because you're going to be counting these things forever. And it's uh, very dangerous for our country. But there are real risks for the election. Today, courts in New York and Pennsylvania ordered the post office to stop policy changes that would slow down the mail echoing last week's settlement with the post office, forcing it to prioritize election mail. And today we're learning of a new cyber attack known as a ransomware attack against one of the leading software companies, Tyler Technologies. Tyler Technologies provides software to some U.S. election officials. uh, And this attack is raising some concerns that state and local government IT systems may not be as secure as they need to be ahead of this election, Pam. Which could, of course, add to any uh, chaos and doubt about the results. Thanks so much, Abby. Appreciate it. And joining me now to discuss all of this is the Arizona Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Look, I want to talk about mail-in ballots first, because Arizona has done it in the past uh, several decades. But in the age of coronavirus, those numbers have skyrocketed. More than three million ballots have already been requested or mailed to voters in Arizona. That's a million more than the 2016 election, for context. Are you confident you're ready to handle this influx of ballots? Yes, we are. We have had mail-in voting, as you've said, in place for decades and and to a large scale. It's how uh, three quarters of Arizonans already vote. And so the infrastructure uh, and the systems we need to process a large number of ballots by mail is in place. Um, And so I'm confident that we're prepared for additional mail-in ballots this election. So you see the president harp on mail-in ballots a lot. And and as Abby pointed out, he was just tweeting recently that, you know, there's no way that these ballots could be all be counted accurately. It is not uncommon for there to be administrative errors when tallying votes. Are you prepared for any issues, even the smallest ones, to be thrust into the national spotlight by people who are fighting against mail-in voting? Well, the president is flat out wrong. Again, we have... um, 
professional election administrators that are doing this work, and we've done it for years, um, we are focused on getting it right. Um, that's our plan right now. And um, and we are prepared for this election, uh, regardless of how people show up and vote, if they're voting in person or voting by mail. Um, we are going to be prepared and we are going to make sure that every single ballot that is validly cast is able to be counted. So you're not concerned about administrative errors with this influx of mail-in ballots happening in your state? No, the systems are in place to ensure that that the ballots are handled properly. And you're actually in a battle right now with your state's governor. Uh, You want to make it easier for people in nursing homes to actually be able to vote by video or telephone. Republican Governor Doug Ducey argues that's illegal and that you're going too far. What do you have to say about that? Well, just a correction, we're not allowing anyone to vote by telephone, but the bottom line is that these are baseless attacks and they're part of the national playbook that we've been seeing around the country. Um, Undermine the credibility of the election officials, then you can undermine the integrity of the election and question the legitimacy of the vote. vote. And um, it, it just has no place. We are focused on getting our jobs done so that this election plays out and that voters have access to the ballot in this election. And thank you for correcting me. So you're, they're only, you're proposing for them to just vote by video. So thanks for that. Um, but if your rules are not allowed to be implemented, how many people may not be able to vote? Well, Maricopa County, which is our most populous county and probably has the most uh, long-term care facilities, they said that they assisted 10 people in the primary election in August with voting via video conference. And this is really a last resort that a special election board would employ if they're not able to have access to a facility because visitors are limited right now. I want to ask you, as we as we wrap this up, what Abby had touched on, that one of America's leading software providers was recently hit with a ransomware attack. Tyler Technologies provides these programs for some election officials. This is a company that tracks these ransomware attacks. He says 75 governments and agencies have been hit already this year. Are you concerned that this could interfere with voting in Arizona or with the, the per- public perception if one of these ransom affa- um, attacks happens? We are certainly concerned with public perception and doing everything that we can to ensure that our systems are secure. We are following best practices and having regular communication with election security officials throughout the state and with our federal partners. Um, So I'm confident that our systems are secure and we we have obviously prevention in place and uh, response plans should anything happen. Uh, but, but again, I do feel confident in the security. Okay, so let's just talk about this because you have the security and then you have, you know, the messaging around anything that could go awry. Um, there are concerns that the constant attacks on the election, including some from the president, are undermining faith in the process. What are you doing to counteract that? As, as I noted earlier, any small thing that happens could be blown up and, and be under the national spotlight. What's your plan to counteract any of that? Yeah, well, it is really frustrating when we're already dealing with misinformation from a lot of different angles and it's coming from directly from the White House. And those kind of things can spread so rapidly on social media. And so our biggest tool is counteracting that with ensuring that voters are getting their information from trusted sources, from those election officials themselves or their official websites. That's really, really critical um, to to stay in front of it. And we had record turnout in both our uh, 
presidential preference election in March and the primary that we just held in August. So I think that the, tr the voters trust in the system is there. We're continuing to see that momentum going into the November election. All right. Thanks so much, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And tomorrow night, President Trump will face off with Joe Biden in the first presidential debate. You can see it all live right here on CNN starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. Well, some Senate Democrats argue Trump's Supreme Court pick could threaten the outcome of the election. I'll get the Republican response to that claim up next. Turning to our politics lead, in just two weeks, the president's third Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, will begin confirmation hearings. Some Senate Democrats are taking a page from Republicans back in 2016, refusing to meet with Trump's nominee, including Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Joining me now is Republican Senator Mike Braun from Indiana. Senator, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. I, I want to go to what Joe Biden said, this appeal to Republican senators over the confirmation of Barrett, saying it would be a, quote, betrayal of the single quality America is born and built on, the people decide. By holding hearings so close to the election, are you taking that right away, Senator? But I tell you what, my take on this is that it's happened historically several times where in an election year you've had a vacancy. And I think if the shoe were on the other foot, they would be doing it at the same speed and probably wouldn't have anybody wavering in their rank and file. So I think the important thing for us is that we get a great candidate across the finish line. And I know there are reservations about what might happen if she gets on the bench. And I'm willing to talk about any of those eventualities because I think when you bring her record, Really quick, before we get to her record, Senator Braun, I just before we get to that, I, I just want to hone in a little bit more on this because you said if the shoe were on the other foot. So if it was reverse, if if um, like it was in 2016, what would you be saying? I mean, would you be making the, the opposite argue the argument that you're making right now? You have to have both shoes on the feet in the sense that that wasn't a situation where the president and the Senate were under the same party. When I referred to it historically, when it was that was the case, it always moved through. Uh, timing was a little different back years ago, but I think if these same set circumstances were in place, you'd see the same thing happening. I think what you need to do is if you've got a valid argument, why she wouldn't be a great but Supreme the big Court argument Justice. back then in That's 2016, what we got the and I and I covered it at length. The big argument was, hey, you've got to let the people weigh in the election. This is an election year. This is an opportunity for the people to weigh in. And now where the Republicans are um, rushing this confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, the Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin was asked if Barrett should recuse herself from any election related cases. Here's what he said. I certainly wish she would. It would it really help matters. This president has been outspoken and outrageous to think that he would not accept the verdict of the election and that he would make it clear that he's filling this vacancy in the Supreme Court to make sure it tips his way if there's any election contest. So if she gets confirmed, would you support Barrett recusing herself on those issues? I don't think she needs to recuse herself because I think when we've got the opportunity to put someone on the bench of her quality where she is uh, so sharp in her opinions, it's said up front that she will be a constitutionalist, even if for some reason she would lean policy-wise. And that's the reason we need more people like her to where they can separate the two, not legislate from the bench. Regardless, 
it's going to move through. Uh, I think that you're going to have the same uh, attempt to maybe derail like you saw back in the Kavanaugh hearings. That was only two years ago. I remember vividly when it got to the decibel level, as caustic as it was. And it was a real, I think, uh, boost for my winning and Josh Hawley's in Missouri. And I think the fact that we control the presidency, have the Senate, it'd be dereliction of duty if we didn't do it. And I can guarantee you the other side would be doing it. And we'd probably be making the same arguments otherwise. Uh, but it's, isn't that what, what case, people outside of the Washington, out of the Beltway, they, they just can't stand the politics and the hypocrisy of it? Isn't this the exact thing that people in your state just are fed up with? I think in my state, clearly, from all the feedback I'm getting, uh, they want to see this process move forward because they, we, they think we have an excellent opportunity to put someone on the bench along the lines of a Scalia, uh, someone that's going to go there that's got an intellect uh, judicially uh, as good as anyone and will be there not legislating from the bench, but giving opinions that make sense constitutionally. Okay, I want to ask you about this New York Times reporting. President Trump paying zero federal income tax for 11 of the 18 years in 2016 and 2017. He paid just $750 each year. What do you say to those Americans who are outraged over this? And as a businessman yourself, before getting into politics, is, have you used the tax code the same way the president has as laid out in this article? Well, when it comes to anybody's tax return, uh, I think the president, now that it's out, uh, will have to explain it accordingly. I know as being a business owner over the years, there were many years building a business where you didn't have much income. In fact, in my journey of 37 years being the CEO of the company I started, uh, hardly ever did we have income that would be measurable until later on. And I think everyone's return is different. If you've got a business that's got a lot of de depreciation, uh, non-cash expenses, it sometimes can end up that way. That'll be for the president to explain. Uh, you know, I think uh, when I look as a business owner, and I can say this unequivocally, uh, what happened with tax policy back in 2017 has driven the economy Right. to be the best one that we've had in my 37 years. I'll be more focused on that. The president will talk about his own return. And there, and there is the question of the president, and then if, if this is just something in the tax um, the tax law that should be addressed when you have the average American paying more than $12,000 in taxes in 2017, then you find out the president paid only $750. Um, I want to ask you, just given all of the rhetoric around the election and the integrity over the election, Will you commit that you will accept the certified results of this election over the president's words if the outcome is not in his favor? I will accept the uh, results of the election. I don't think that's going to be an issue, even though I think it's going to be a really close election. And we could have several situations that will be reminiscent of what happened in Florida years ago. I have full confidence in the American system that we will sort through it and that there will be a validated winner. And whoever that is will lead us for the next four years and whoever loses will accept it. So you will accept that. Okay, we'll accept the certified results. All right, Senator Mike Braun, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on the show. Good to be on. Well, he is the face of Russia propaganda and now he is sitting down exclusively with CNN to talk about President Trump and the upcoming election.
Turning to our world lead now, the man dubbed Russia's propagandist in chief is giving us an exclusive window into what the Kremlin is likely thinking about the upcoming election. Russia's top state news anchor sat down with CNN's Matthew Chance to talk all things Trump and share if he thinks Biden would help or hurt the already complicated relationship between the U.S. and Russia in his very first U.S. television interview. There's been a distinct change in tone on Russian television about President Trump. It was a very nice offer from President Putin. And I could have said no thank you or I could have said thank you. This spoof video on its English language channel promoting U.S. election coverage shows Trump as the loser taking up a job as a top Russian news anchor. And I said... I'll take it. It's a humorous jab at Trump's apparent affection for Russia. But the country's actual top state news anchor isn't laughing. In his first ever US TV interview, the man dubbed the Kremlin's chief propagandist, tells me how hopes of blossoming US-Russian relations under President Trump have vanished. Russia has never had as many sanctions as it has under Trump, not a single state visit to Russia or to the United States. Is it your hope that if President Trump wins a second term, that things will change, that he might be able to um, have a more positive relationship with Moscow? Nothing will change. That's America. But actually, things might change. There'll be a price to pay. And Putin knows the reason he doesn't want me as president. He knows me and he knows I mean it. And Kisilov, sanctioned by the EU for spreading Kremlin propaganda, tells me a hardline Biden presidency could plunge U.S.-Russian relations into a dangerous spiral. What will he do? Go to war against us? No way to win for him. Well, he said that he would. Let me, let me repeat. Russia is the only country in the world with the capability to turn America into the radioactive ash. With its vast nuclear arsenal, that may be terrifyingly true. But on Russia's flagship current affairs show, it's how America's already destroying itself that's dominating coverage. The chaos and death shows the US has lost its moral leadership, Kisilov says. For the Kremlin, accused by U.S. intelligence of sowing discord, that may be a victory of sorts, no matter who the next president may be. If you were forced to choose between a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, which one would you go for? Tell, in English, tell me, which one would you go for? I would just, um, I would like to throw a coin so nothing changes, nothing will change. Well, Pam, despite that acceptance that things are not likely to get better between Russia and the United States, no matter who's elected as president, it doesn't mean that Russia has stopped meddling in the U.S. election. U.S. intelligence officials say that Russia is still involved in trying to manipulate the outcome in favor of Trump and against Joe Biden. Pam. And as you talk to people on the streets in Moscow, what are their thoughts on the U.S. election? Well, it's interesting because what I learned from that uh, top state news anchor is that from a Kremlin point of view, they don't see any upside whichever 
person, whichever individual wins the presidency. And so they're quite agnostic about it. But if you speak to ordinary Russians, well, they're still in that sort of 2016 mindset that Trump is the man that backs Russia and that Biden is not a friend of this country. Hmm. All right. Matthew Chance live for us in Moscow. Thanks so much, Matthew. And I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. You can find me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or just tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues right now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.